It's time for TCH. Welcome to the Christian's Hour broadcast. I'm Stan Smelser, program host. Love and war, light and darkness, assurance and conviction. These are all great contrasts that could describe the Apostle John's writing in the Bible's book of 1 John. If you've read John's writings, you might have noticed that while he focuses a lot on love, he also writes of contrasts such as these. This month, Aaron Brockett, lead minister with Traders Point Christian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, will be helping us wrap our hearts and heads around the contrasts of 1 John. My granddaughter and I have a little word game we like to play. We will ask each other, are you sure? Are you really sure? Are you absolutely sure? In today's message, Aaron unpacks how John helps us answer the eternal version of that question. Are you sure? Are you really sure? Are you absolutely sure? Well, if you got a Bible, go ahead and uh, find 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. And as you're um, finding that and kind of getting settled in, um, I want to ask you if you would just help me finish these very, very familiar sentences. All right. Uh, There is nothing new under the yeah, you've heard it before. Um, history repeats itself. Yeah. The more things change, the more they... Yes, and one more. What goes around comes around. Yeah, you, you've heard it before. And the reason why you've heard it before, these are kind of these familiar sayings and cliches, is because there's a lot of truth behind it. History repeats itself. Uh, Winston Churchill one time said this, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. And in fact, let me uh, describe a certain cultural moment that a set of Christians found themselves in, and then you try to guess what era I'm talking about. All right, so here's the description. Uh, the culture is incredibly confusing, chaotic, and divided. Uh, pressure and temptation are so intense and so constant that many are wrestling with whether they should hold on to Jesus or let go and walk away. Ideologies and agendas are being pushed to the point that it's becoming disorienting. In fact, it's been revealed that Some Christians and even some pastors no longer believe what they used to, and now they're misleading others. And many have deconstructed their faith, and they've walked away, and it's really discouraging and disorienting. Now, if you had to guess what time in history I'm referring to, what would your guess be? And some of you may go, well, I don't know, it kind of sounds a lot like today. Well, I'm actually describing the 90s. Now, not the 1990s, 90s A.D., about 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the cultural moment that John writes these three little letters at the end of our New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, to a group of Christians who, a lot like us, found themselves in a very confusing, divided, disorienting culture, revealing to us that we are not living in unprecedented times. We hear that phrase a lot. We heard it a lot through the pandemic. You know, these are unprecedented times, but, you know, pandemics are recorded all throughout history. What we, what we should say is these are uncharted waters, perhaps for us, but it's not unprecedented. Like we've been here before. And that's one of the things that I want you to see as we kind of wrap up this series in the letter to First John is that John is writing to very, very similar cultural circumstances that you and I are living in today, which means that the application that they had for them then can still be the same application for us 
today. We've been calling this series Love and War. And the reason why is because John likes to use sharp contrast to make his point. And there's a tension between the two. John's favorite was light and darkness. And love and war seem to be these two words that seem to be in sharp contrast with each other. But the reason why we're using it is because it keeps coming up in John's writing. John wants to make us aware of the war that we are in because you cannot win a war you're not aware of. But he makes it really clear that we're not fighting like a, a physical war. Like we're not fighting a culture war or a political war, or even an ideological war. John is saying, uh, hey, we're fighting what Ephesians 6 does so well to describe, um, a spiritual war. The principalities and powers of darkness behind the scenes that are seeking to, to sort of uh, disillusion us. And so we've got to recognize who our true adversary really is. And John would say the way in which we win this war is love. Now, we've also got to define that. Well, what does that mean exactly? And so John's been going back and forth describing what the love of God means and describing this war that we are in. And uh, one of the primary themes, if you've been with us through this series, is John in the same sentence will provide us with an assurance of our faith. And then before the sentence is even over, he brings about conviction of sin. And it is within the tension of having assurance of where we stand with God and then conviction of our sin that brings about transformation. So we're not going to let go of conviction and succumb to the culture. And we're not going to dig our heels in and go to war with the culture, but we're going to allow God's love to transform who we are so that his presence in our lives is evident and undeniable to the culture. That's why John writes. And so as we come to the end of the letter, we'll see that the end kind of begins like, the, or ends like the, it did at the, the beginning, where John at the very beginning tells us why he's writing. And now before he wraps up, he's going to remind us once again as to why he's writing. Uh, look with me at verse 13. He says, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So John is saying, hey, here is my target audience. This is the bullseye of who I'm writing to. Those who believe in God. It doesn't mean that those who don't believe in God won't get anything out of this because the Bible is living and active. It, it penetrates our lives. You don't just read, study, dissect, and explain the Bible. The Bible reads, studies, and dissects you. And so John says, hey, hey, this is applicable to everybody, but I want to be really clear. The bullseye of my target is those who believe in the Son of God. And then check out what he says at the end of that verse. So that you may... What's the word? No. Like, so that you may know you have eternal life. He doesn't say, hey, so that you might wonder if you have eternal life. You, you might cross your fingers and hope you might have eternal life so that you might guess. No, he goes, no, I want you to know. And the word for that is assurance. Now, why does John keep reassuring us all through uh, the letter? Well, I think it's because, you know, we, we need it. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, at times I can second guess and I can become paranoid and I can kind of wonder not only where I stand with God, but where I stand with you and where I stand in relationship with others. And so John just continues to come back to this and he says, hey, guys, I, I want you to, to know. And why is assurance so critical? I think a couple of reasons. The first is simply this. Um, God really does love you. And John wants us to know it, like without a shadow of a doubt. Now, the unfortunate thing with the phrase, God really loves you, is that we've turned it into a bumper sticker. 
That is a profound statement that the creator of the universe knows you and loves you. And yet it's a, it's a statement that doesn't necessarily like impact us as emotionally as, as what it should. And so here's what John is trying to be really clear with is that we serve a God, like the Christian faith is about a God who wants to be clear. Like most other belief systems are vague. It's do your best. You know, try to achieve the thing, learn as much as you can, and hopefully you'll be okay. But God is very, very clear about his righteous requirements and how he feels for us because he doesn't just want a bunch of uh, subjects that will just sort of like follow after him by checking our brains at the door. God desires a relationship. And so he tells us flat out how he feels about us. So you might write this down. Real, authentic love can only grow in the soil of security. See, when you make somebody behave by threatening or manipulating them, you might coerce their behavior, but you will never captivate their heart. And that's why uh, as Christians, when we're seeking to live out our faith and be on mission for Jesus in this very, very divided, confusing and disorienting time, we've got to realize that it is impossible to um, moralize or to argue somebody to Jesus. Like you just can't do that. If you could argue somebody into a relationship with Jesus, (laughs) all that's going to be required is a better worded argument to get them out of it. No, what we desire to do is to live out and to explain the gospel message and to trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of people to bring them to a saving faith because we're not trying to win an argument. We're not trying to convince them. We're trying to bring this to this place where the very presence of Jesus can transform them. And I see right now like these two really dramatic extremes happening in our culture. And over the last 50, 60 years, as we've seen culture become more brazen in their defiance of truth, I think that um, we, we find ourselves as Christians maybe somewhat confused and, and disoriented by all that. And the response for some is to cave in and the response for others is to sort of rise up. And so right now I, I hear this sentiment from a lot of people within culture and even from a lot of like some Christians is like, you know, uh, we just need to tell people to follow their truth. And then the other side kind of rises up and says, no, we just need to hit them with the truth. And the gospel message is in the tension in the middle. And so we need to recognize as it, within the culture in which we live, especially as the extremes get wider and wider and things get more and more divided, as Christ followers, we hold on to Jesus and we recognize the truth of Colossians 4. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be, here's the descriptive words, gracious, and and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Uh, First Peter three says, if somebody asks you about the hope you have as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But then he says this, but do this with gentleness, do this with respect. See, See, we're not trying to coerce behavior. We're trying to give people the opportunity to have Jesus captivate their heart. The only way to develop real love for God is to have fear removed. Love for God only grows in the soil of security. First John 4, 19 says, we love God, why? Because we were commanded to? No, because God loved us first. And having the assurance that the love that God has for us is what produces genuine love for God in us.
And that naturally leads to the next thing that John writes in verse 14. Look, look at it with me. He says, because of this, we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but the cynic within me rises up when I read those two little verses. Doesn't it to you? It's like, you know, John just said, hey, you know, hey, we, we can be confident that God hears us when we ask for anything that pleases him. And then since we know that he hears us, we can make our requests known and he'll give us what we ask for. And yet every single one of us can probably say, yeah, but I've prayed some prayers before and I don't know that God heard me. Or I've prayed some prayers before and, you know, God didn't answer uh, that request. But the, the key to this is found in that, in that little, those little words at the end of verse 14, when it says, when we ask for anything that pleases him. And all that means is when we ask for anything that is in alignment with his will for us. That just simply means that God sits from a seat in which he has a perspective that you and I don't have. Like he's all knowing, he sees time all at once. And so there may, and, and certainly this is true for the, for the older that I get, the more I realize as I go back and maybe look at some old prayer journals or look at some seasons of my life in which I genuinely thought what I was asking God for, the, the rock solid answer to this should be yes. And now with a little bit of time and perspective, 10, 15, 20, 25 years later, I realized, no, actually the best answer to that prayer was no, because my perspective has been changed. So God answers every single prayer we pray. Now, whether he answers it the way you want is another issue. The timing in which he answers it, that's the big, big issue. And I think for many of us, we want a vending machine, God, you know, let me just put in the thing, you know, give me the prayer right away. But God can say yes to re your request, which we all love a good yes. That's why we pray those prayers. Uh, he can say no. I would say uh, maybe the majority of the time he says, wait. And uh, there have been plenty of times when in my life I've interpreted wait as no, but it wasn't no, it was wait. And it's in the waiting that formation takes place. It's in the waiting that God begins to organize some things. In the book of Daniel, Daniel prays a prayer and he doesn't hear anything. And then finally the angel shows up one day, I would imagine out of breath and says, Daniel, as soon as you prayed that prayer, heaven dispatched me to answer your prayer. And I got hung up in spiritual battle behind the scenes. There's a whole lot going on behind the scenes that we need to recognize. I, I want you to, to, to hear me say this. I think that uh, as a father, like I know this to be true, like if my kids make a request of me as their dad, I'm always looking for a yes. If there's a way for me to say yes to them, I'm gonna say yes. The only way that I'll say no is uh, if what they're asking is illegal, which I don't know that that's ever happened. That'd be really concerning. Um, or if I just know that it would uh, hinder the development of their character, or if I know that it's just flat out the wrong request and they can't see it from their perspective. But if it's anything else, I'm looking to say yes. This is what John is driving at here. And then he says something, verses 16 through 17, I think the most confusing in the whole letter, but there is a, an explanation for it. But notice, you're gonna see what I mean as we read this. Look at verse 16. He says, if you see a fellow believer sinning, in a way that does not lead to death, right? So hold on to that little phrase. He says, you should pray and God will give that person life. In other words, God's gonna bring this person back. God's gonna be at work in their life. But there is a sin that leads to death. 
And I am not saying you should pray for those who commit it. So right there, that's confusing. Those two dichotomies there. We got to understand what he means by the sin that leads to death. And he said, all wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death, right? So thanks, John, for being clear as mud. I think it's very clear that his original audience knew what he meant by the sin that leads to death because he doesn't take time to explain it. I think they would have known. For us today, though, it, we're left with a little bit of a difficulty in understanding fully what he meant, but uh, we do have some clues. So uh, commentators offer up a few suggestions. So number one, we just have to start with this baseline. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that has led to death, a, a general death. Your body is gonna give out 80 to 90 years or, uh, you know, that's about the mileage that we've got. And this, this world is broken because of sin. So that's all sin leads to death, that very generally. Then you've got a sin that leads to death specifically. And he's not talking so much about a physical death, but a spiritual one. And I think that's what the original audience would have understood. A spiritual death. So uh, what is that? Well, um, two things come to mind. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and apostasy. So a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if I could define it, would just simply be this. A deliberate, open-eyed rejection of known truth. It's a verbal, knowledgeable, and it's continual. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 said, Esau hardened his heart to the point that repentance was impossible. How do I know I haven't committed it? And I would just simply say, if you're worried, if you've committed it, you haven't committed it. It's the idea that uh, conviction of sin reveals that you are still connected to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is what and who convicts you of sin. And so if blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means you're so hard-hearted, like you no longer feel conviction. The other is um, what we might call apostasy. And this is what John was contending for in this letter. And we see this a lot today. Apostasy, a total rejection of Jesus as the son of God and a denial of the faith. You formerly gave lip service to him. You formerly said he was Lord and savior, but now you full on have deconstructed and denied the faith, walked completely away from him. And so John is drawing this distinction here. And he says in verse 18, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. And he says, for God's son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. And that's good to know. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Uh, verse 19 should bring about a lot of explanation as to why there's so much pain in the world. We're under the control of the evil one. Here, I've heard it described this way. Satan is like a chained rabid dog. You get close enough to him, he's going to bite you, but he's chained. He only has a certain reach. God's children means that he's got us. He's, he's holding us securely in this world that is controlled by the evil one. And he says that we are not going to premeditate or hold on to or persist in or practice sinning. Are we still going to struggle and fall occasionally? You bet we will. And when we do, we recognize it, we see it, we turn from it. And real Christianity is us not, it's not us white knuckling morality. Man, if you've ever tried to white knuckle morality, then you know, some of you can testify to this. All you do is give that vice or temptation more power over you. What happens as you come to God is that it is the death to your former self and new life. It is a renewal of your mind and your heart. And God gives you a new set of desires. Some of those happen right away. Some of those happen over time as we grow. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world, but what? Let who? Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way, not you behave, changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. So God changes us by giving us a new heart, which means you got to be born again. Like you've, you've got to be born from above. And when that happens, God gives you a new set of desires. And we're still going to continue to struggle. But when we do, we get back up. I love how the book of Proverbs says it in verse 24. It says, the righteous man falls seven times. Man, if somebody falls once, that's an accident. Somebody falls twice, that's unfortunate. Somebody falls seven times, check how you're walking, right? So, so the idea like, like somebody fell seven times and he goes, but rises again. And righteous people, I mean, you and I, like we're still going to fall, but when we get back up, we look to Jesus. Your salvation is not demonstrated by never falling. Your salvation is demonstrated by what you do when you fall. And conversion is not sinless perfection. It's a new direction. So when I fall, I don't say, well, that's just what I do. You know, I don't, when I fall, I don't try to hide it. When I fall, I don't try to uh, explain it away. When I fall, I say, man, I fell. And I'm going to own that. And I'm going to stand back up and I'm going to look to Jesus. And look, look what it says in verse 20. He says, and we know that the son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Why? Because anything else that can take God's place in your heart is not enough to save. It's not enough to justify. It's not enough to give you your identity. Colossians 3 puts this so well. Verse, the first three verses says, since you have been raised to life with new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits. That's the idea that the work has been finished. So he sat down. When do you sit down? When the work's done. And Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And then in verse 10, it says this, put on your new nature and be renewed. That's a renewal of the mind. As you learn to know your creator and become like him. It's not just about learning information. It's about learning this information so that we can be transformed. And the gospel is not an achievement it is a standing and it is not dependent upon how much you know. And it's not dependent upon how much you do and how well you perform. It is first and foremost about you and me resting in the finished work of Jesus. And from that position, we can now grow. From that position, we can now take a stand on our convictions, but we first have to sit and we have to keep coming around to that position of sitting and resting in Christ. Otherwise, we begin to delude ourselves into thinking it's something that we perform or something that we achieve. Jesus finished the work on your behalf and you receive that and you rest in it. And so now um, the question is, in, what, in who or what are you trusting in to justify yourself? And this is the invitation of the gospel is you 
rest upon the finished work of Jesus. And I know right now some, some of you be like, well, you know, th- this is once again, the tension between evangelism and discipleship. It's like, well, well, where's the challenge for people to grow? Or wh- when do we stand up on our convictions? And that is a really, really good point. I want to illustrate it this way. There's a little book that I'd highly recommend that called Sit, Stand, Walk. And it's uh, written by a guy named Watchman Nee. It'll take you, I listened to it on Audible. It took me about an hour and a half to listen to it on Audible. It's based on the book of Ephesians. And in it, he says there are three positions that we must take with Jesus. Sit, stand, and walk. And he said, we've got to remember all three of those positions in the, in the Christian life. So, so sit is the recognition that we are justified by the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. And you simply sit in that. And he says, that's the primary position that we have to come to with Jesus. And then from this position, then we are able to get up. We're going to need to walk with Christ. You know, that's the most common analogy in the scriptures for our relationship with him is a walk. This is why we oftentimes describe it that way, my, my spiritual walk. And as I'm walking with Jesus, that's growth. That's sanctification. That's digging the wells deep. And then as we've taken a seat in Christ and as we're walking with Christ, then when the opportunity arises, we can stand. We can stand when life is hard. We can stand when maybe our faith is challenged. We can stand when the cultural winds blow against us. But we can't forget that first step. And we can't fail to, to come back to it on a regular basis as Christians. The gospel message isn't just for the day of your salvation. It is for every single day thereafter. Because as human beings, we have a tendency to slip into religion and to begin to work for and to try to justify ourselves. And I just want to encourage you today just to come back to this position. You just take a seat. You know, scripture says that Jesus is our mercy seat and we rest completely in him. And so today, I want to invite you to, to do that. For some of you, you haven't, you haven't taken a seat in a long time, and you're exhausted, and you've been running, and you've been trying to grow, and you've been taking a stand, and you've been fighting the culture war, and all that's fine and good, but it means nothing if you're not seated upon the person of Jesus Christ. The account of your heavenly Father is what covers, is what covers you. And so today, I want to invite you to take a seat. That, that's for those of you that have never come to Christ before, and that is for those of you that have been following him for a long time. You take a seat. You sit upon the finished work of Jesus. If we are walking in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we are willing to confess our own unrighteousness, He will wash away all our transgressions. If we are walking in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one to Aaron Brockett for this month's insights into 1 John's contrasts. Our thanks, too, to Acapella Ministries for pointing our hearts heavenward. The book of 1 John 
always a favorite spot in the Bible for me because of the assurance that John writes of, so that you may know you have eternal life, 1 John 5.13. When dealing with the spiritual battle and all that Satan throws at Christ's followers, the book of 1 John could fit well into my granddaughter's surety question. Are you sure? Are you really sure? Are you First John sure? For a free download of today's program, go to thechristianshour.org. That's thechristianshour.org. While there, be sure to check out the international multilanguage ministries of TCH and GBM. If you'd like a free copy of this program on CD, just call us at 515-770-2241. That's 515-770-2241. When you call, please be prepared to leave us your name and mailing address. You'll also find us at oneplace.org, iTunes, and Google Play. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week for another edition of TCH. TCH.